0: Welcome to Shooting the Shit. I'm Alex. not I'm Oscar. We were random roommates. And now we're random best mates. So Dave, thank you so much for joining us. To begin the, the interview, we'd like for you to introduce yourself and talk about where your maker-creator story begins. Well, I'm Dave
1: Beach. I'm a teacher. I'm a father. Uh, and I am a maker, for sure. Where did it all start? My earliest memories are that when my parents had bought a house in Columbus, Ohio, I think that would have been uh, when I was maybe 5 or 6 years old. Uh, there'd been there'd been an inheritance and that gave them a little money so they they bought a two-story house and they bought a they inherited a 1937 Chevrolet business person's coupe. It was, in those days, a businessman's an un, 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 unembarrassed uh, description of it. Uh, it had two doors to get in and out of. It was black, and it had a long, shiny hood. And I, as a youngster, used to go out, it was parked on the street, and I would open the, they were gullwing hood covers, so that was kind of interesting, and I would open them up, and I would just spend hours staring at what was under the hood, trying to figure out what that might all mean and how it might work. Um, so I f- was fascinated for some reason, who knows what, by machinery from a, a very young age. Uh, and then later on, still living in Columbus, Ohio, I lived there up until age 12, so I would have been younger than 12 at that point. Uh, my parents bought a, a farmhouse, which was no longer a farmhouse, but it sat on half an acre of land, and it had been a farmhouse uh, probably since the early 1700s in center-level Maine, a little town in the mountains of Maine. Um, and there, one of the people they got to know, they were named the Halford family, and they had a boathouse on Lake Keezer, and they had a Garwood cruiser. So one of these beautiful varnished, wooden, open runabout boats with an inboard engine, which kind of went lump, 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 lump. It was not definitely not a racing <laughs> boat. It was a sporting boat. And I spent a lot of time being very interested in the engine in that, and now I was old enough that I could ask interesting questions and, and get some answers. And Eventually, my mother decided it would be okay if I had a boat on the lake, so she bought me a 12-foot aluminum rowboat and a 1927 Evinrude outboard motor that would not run. And At that point in time, I did not have the skills to make it run, so she took it to the local Uh, garage, filling station, which also doubled as as a mechanical facility, mechanics repair facility. And they put in some new ignition parts and suddenly it would run. So I spent a lot of time out on the lake with this ancient outboard motor, just kind of cruising around. So for a long time, I've been attracted to things mechanical, who knows why.
2: Question on that on that that motor that you got, how was it? Or from who did uh, your mom purchase it from? And did she know when she got it that it wasn't working?
1: I don't know where she bought it. She searched for it. She did the shopping. Okay, knew was ask, and she would deliver. It was I had an amazingly permissive slash supportive childhood, to say the least. Um, and I think she knew it wasn't working when she bought it. Uh, but she's she's always loved antiques. And the fact that she could find an antique outboard motor, I think really appealed to her sensibilities. And, uh, and the guy who ran the filling station, he was the owner, was named Archie Lawton. And he was kind of a legend in this little tiny town in the White Mountains of Maine. And he took it on and I think charged her, who knows, $5 or something. I think he put in a... Maybe one new contact switch, which had been the kill switch and which was corroded and therefore uh, it was permanently killed. And after that, uh, it ran reasonably reliably for a long time. I have it still. It's in my garage here in Palo Alto. Oh, wow. And I believe if you were to come today, uh, I could probably make it start.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, it seems like it worked out well that it it wasn't a functioning uh, motor from the get-go. So uh, you always gotta love broken things as much as you love working things, I like to think. Or that's one of my opinions in engineering.
1: (laughs) Well, I agree. There's two points that derive from your observation. The first one is that some kinds of machines kind of have life in them, and they're either dead or they're alive. And if you can bring them to life, you have perhaps some of the satisfaction that a surgeon would have with a successful operation on a failing patient. There's a kind of a sense of control Uh, that for me was important. I also have a couple of antique mechanical clocks, one of which I brought back to life recently, and every morning I've been counting how many days it runs before it needs to be wound again. (laughs) It's supposed to be a 10-day clock, but it had been running for minutes and stopping, and then running for minutes and stopping until I ministered to it, so the fact that things are alive is important, I think, and clocks and internal combustion engines are two good examples, and the fact that You as a human being, or in this case, I as a human being, have some control, some ability to bring that life back when it's gone is pretty exciting. In -hmm. fact, I, I might just mention that as an undergraduate at Stanford, I forget what the assignment was. I was a product design major at the time, and the assignment had something to do with creating a mechanism, I think. And what I did is I took that Seth Thomas wall clock apart far enough to try and understand how it worked And then I built a very simplified replica of it, which rather than going tick, tock, tick, tock, went thump, dunk thump, dunk thump, and then it ran (laughs) ran for 10 seconds and then quit running. But it was uh, was an escapement. It did run a little bit. And I began a kind of lifelong love affair with mechanisms at that point in time.
2: No, that's fantastic. One of the words you use to describe yourself, which you are is a teacher, in this creative journey of you engaging with engineering on your own and then transitioning to what I like to think, at least from my experience in uh, being in the same space as you, of now imparting some of that ability in others to continue discovering their creative processes. When did that transition happen from being a more practicing engineer, if you will, to then switching over to a lot of your work being involved with students and people.
1: As mentioned, I was an undergraduate and then later a master's candidate in product design at Stanford. And at that point in time, I graduated in 1972. So from about 68 to about 72, uh, I was in a program that emphasized hands-on work of various kinds. You learn to draw, you learn to build rapid prototypes, you learn to run machine tools, you learn to make a casting in the foundry, and you were encouraged to design something original that would contribute to improving the world in some way and then build it and put it in service and test it. So I was in a culture that was a terrifically good match for who I had become at that point in time as an adult. I had no idea that I was gonna wanna teach ever. In fact, I was looking forward to working for Hewlett Packard as as an entry-level engineering designer. That's what everybody else was doing in those days. That was a sure ticket to a successful career. Uh, But along the way, a professor named Jim Adams, who had come to us from Caltech, where he graduated first in his class, but he'd also studied oil painting at UCLA. He was a kind of a Renaissance man. He did, as his PhD thesis at Stanford, a device which facilitated communications with the moon. It was a robotic device and it attended to the time lag between sending a signal out and getting it back in a very high tech. So combination, electromechanical, PhD, uh, frontier kind of a, a scholar at the time. And he was teaching in the product design program at that time. And he came by one day when I had just finished, I don't know, we had an assignment and probably we put our work up on the wall and I'd done some kind of a little graphic of some kind. And he looked at it and he looked at me and he said, oh, you finally learned to relax. This is very nice. (laughs) That was the beginnings of my relationship with Jim Adams. Later on, as I was about to graduate, there was, I had a a classmate uh, who was talking to me about what I really wanted to do in life. And at that point in time, Leonard Daig, who had my job, he was running the Stanford student shops and he was aging and ready to retire and had some health problems. And I got wind of this because he and I became, we we weren't really close friends, but we talked to each other pretty frequently. And so I went to Jim, who was then uh, director of the design division. And I said, Jim, I think I want Leonard's job. I think I want to run the shops. And I had taken a couple of courses at Foothill Junior College in machining. And one in, a couple in machining, one in photography. I'd done some kind of hands-on, uh, courses there and learned something about teaching from a fellow named Warren White, who was in charge of their machine tool apprentice program. And it was at that point in time that HP uh, machinists, apprentice were working for HP in the shops during the day and going to school at Foothill and later on at Danza college evenings. So I had gotten a little more information, quite a bit more information about machining under those circumstances. And I figured maybe I could run the shop and that would be fun. And Jim Adams essentially said to me, I can make you the following offer. We'll take Leonard's salary. We'll divide it in half. And for the next year, he'll earn half of his previous salary as he retires. And you'll earn half of his previous salary as, we, as you come aboard. And that meant I was making 25% of an offer that I might have gotten from Hewlett Packard. So at this point in time, my wife comes into the picture. And Stephanie amazingly agreed to this proposition. I have never understood. She must have been so in love with me, she was irrational. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. That's that's how we started. And Leonard's health deteriorated a little faster than anticipated. So he moved back to Iowa, leaving me alone to try and run a foundry, a wood shop, welding, sheet metal forming and machining facility, in which I had only a little training formally in machining. Uh, So that was the state of my teaching. Jim Adams was then teaching ME 103-203. And I tried to talk him into giving everybody the same project because I figured I could learn how to do that and then I could be a useful coach. But he said, oh no, everybody's going to do their own project. That's not going to fly. And so I was there woefully unprepared to play the role that Craig Milroy plays today, which was to run the shops and to do design coaching. Uh, And... The first time I actually got to do an in-class uh, presentation of any kind was again Jim Adams, and he was teaching something called uh, quality and the products of technology or something that was advocating that in fact mass-produced things uh, can exhibit wonderful craftsmanship and, and or can be a sense of joy, not something to criticize. And he invited me to come in and talk about injection molding, about which I knew virtually nothing. And I had never given a lecture to anybody in my life at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Luckily for me, Jim Yurchenko, who had been an art student, graduate MFA student, who spent a lot of time at Stanford in the lab. So I got to know him quite well. He had gone to work for IDEO in their early days. He's Mm -hmm. retired since. He's probably the most prominent designer that IDEO has ever had working for them. Um, And so he knew something about injection molding. So I went to him and I said, Jim, teach me about injection molding. And I took lots and lots of notes and I gave a lecture based on what he told me. I went into that classroom terrified. I'd spent probably two full-time weeks trying to get ready, ready to give a, maybe a half hour, maybe it was an hour talk. I went in terrified. Uh, I left terrified. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely was not an expert in the subject I'd been asked to talk about. And Jim Adams, of course, praised me to the skies for what a wonderful job I'd done. And from that time, I've made a transition which is now I don't want any damn guest lecturers because I want that airtime to myself. I do not want to give up the podium to anybody else. So that comes with experience. Maybe, maybe there's something genetic in it. I don't know, Uh, but I think it's like a lot of things in life. Once you do it more and more and more times, assuming that you're not hating doing it, that you're, you you are in fact motivated to do it. You just get uh, more and more confident, uh, perhaps better and better. I, I can't say for sure. Uh, that would be up to you to say, I think, but <laughs> that's kind of where my college teaching was born.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I must say that genetically, there's some reason for it, maybe. And my maternal grandfather was the headmaster of Girls' Latin School in Boston, which was the most prestigious private school for women at that time. My maternal grandfather was the chairman of the English department at the University of Minnesota And my maternal great-grandfather had been, or my paternal great-grandfather had been the president of the University of Minnesota. So there is some academics. And when I grew up, I knew what a professor was, kind of, although I sure didn't really understand it, but, but I knew that professors were good and to be admired. And so the opportunity to move in that direction professionally was consistent with the culture in which I grew up.
0: You know, what, what you were saying about how when you started out as, as a lecturer, you really didn't know much of what you were doing and you were kind of cobbling together the knowledge as you went. That's very validating, you know, as we're both young professionals, just hearing about how it's a little bit of a pretend world for a little bit until you build up that confidence and then you can actually be confident in your, your knowledge. On that note of like your teacher's journey, because the PRL gets so many different people from different disciplines, do you have like a proven method of being able to engage them with making?
1: I have opinions. Mm
0: -hmm. I think
1: it might be an exaggeration to say it's proven. Uh, Sherry Shepard's group uh, has done some research around our course, uh, which doesn't always validate the things I believe and, and, and think. And sometimes it does. So I will share opinions with you, but they do not have the uh, prestige of academically, rigorously supported uh, research and conclusion. What do do I believe about how to help people be more creative? First, I think human beings are intrinsically wired to be creative, if by that you mean to manipulate the physical resources of our world uh, to change their experience and maybe the experience of others along the way. You know, I think human beings fundamentally as a species, homo sapiens need to eat enough that they can support combustion in their bodies, uh, drink enough that they can stay hydrated, stay warm enough that they can support combustion in their bodies, uh, procreate so that the species will continue. And I think at that same level of uh, phylogenetic compulsion is making things because as bipeds, we're not very fast, we're not very stable on the ground, we're not very good at climbing trees or rocks, uh, but what we are good at is understanding how to modify the environment in which we live so that we can eat, stay warm, procreate, and, and, and so I think that's one of the most fundamental things about human beings is making. So it's not a very hard job, especially at Stanford where most students come without a lot of that kind of experience. They did not grow up on a farm. They did not grow up on a commercial fishing vessel. They probably grew up somewhere between an inner city impoverished uh, youthful experience and uh, relatively affluent, everything was scheduled for them. They had school, and then they had language school after school, and then they had AYSO soccer, and and then they had music lessons, and and <laughs> all of that tends to be structured and of, of great value, but it does not give them the experience of experimenting with manipulating the physical world in much depth, typically. So you have a population of students like that, inexperienced but wired as human beings to really need to be makers whether they know it or not. And if you give them just a little opportunity to put their toe in the water and try it, usually a huge amount of energy is liberated. And so my job is just so easy. I just send them off to the lab to, you know, face the end of a piece of Delrin round bar stock. And all of a sudden their life is transformed their view of themselves, their sense of, Uh, being human beings, of being capable, a fancy word for that is agency, their their sense that they can achieve goals that have to do with creating physical or manipulating physical things is often born right there in the PRL. And and so that's the most wonderful thing about teaching for me is it just happens that what I was interested in as a young, young person is also a source of energetic ignition for almost all students. The next thing i would say which i think is very clearly true this is an opinion but i i think it's a it's an opinion worth paying attention to at stanford and probably almost everywhere else in life everyone is wonderful they all have tremendous potential capabilities experiences ideas worldviews they may be more or less mature Uh, they may be uh uh, coming from a wide variety of different places and spiritual backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds. So there's a lot of diversity. Everyone is wonderful. And so as a teacher, the first thing that's important is to remember that. And maybe a student isn't well-equipped to take ME 103 when they come in. My goal then would have to be to hope they are well-equipped to take ME 318 when they leave ME 103-203 to have an impact on that situation and a way to do that is to get to know them so the first thing in my view that any design coach any teacher really wants to do will have nothing to do with machining or heat transfer or, or dynamics it will have to do with getting to know the student spend time establishing a personal relationship with a student and that would include, of course, learning their names, at which I'm very bad. But it would also include, of course, and it would include answering their emails instantaneously, at which I'm even worse. Uh, but it would definitely include finding out where they grew up, uh, what sports they may have played, kind of what their worldview is. And by doing that first, now you've got a foundation from which if you want to talk about something as boring as what's the right rake angle for a left-hand turning tool in 6061 T6 aluminum, you can have that conversation and and the student might even stay engaged with it. But if if you don't start out with getting to know the, the student at a fairly intimate level, sort of as quickly as you can without offending anybody, uh, without being disrespectful, then you then you have a huge handicap. And then the next thing I think is, if the student gets to the point where they're courageous enough to share their work with you, and we kind of force that, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, I think for many students, that's not an easy thing to do. First part of the meeting is reestablishing a personal relationship, a non-technical relationship. Next part of the meeting is identifying some strengths, something to say, wow, that's really amazing what you did there everybody could have had that idea and it's really an important idea or not everybody would have done that little piece of research and learned that thing which you brought to this meeting. So finding something to praise and then you're in a position, I think, to talk about the path forward for that student Mm -hmm. to suggest options, possibilities, resources, uh, ideas that build on whatever they've brought to the table. So I think the most fundamental thing the PRL is trying to do is it's trying to make sure that students have self-confidence in their ability to manipulate the physical world and in themselves uh, at the end of their experience there. And whether what they learn technically, they inevitably will learn some technical things, Uh, but what they learn technically is of secondary importance as far as I'm concerned.
2: Now that's really great to hear sort of uh, your thought process on that because I can recall one of the biggest challenges for me in entering the mechanical engineering program was this kind of uh, overlooming fear and trying to break this boundary of uh, being willing to create and, you know, not everything's going to turn out well. And, uh, you know, both from uh, a generating idea standpoint, and then actually making them, there was always this fear throughout, but um, knowing that, and then eventually, I felt welcome with my design coaches and whoever I was working with, but that is always, I think, one of those uh, challenges of how you inspire creativity and students for being willing to go after it. So no, it's really nice to hear that.
1: It's really nice to hear your comment. It suggests that opinions have at least some people who who feel they're appropriate. (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm. No, 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 without a doubt. And so that brings me to sort of this other point now, given the circumstances we're in in this world with the pandemic and sort of this massive shift that has happened in education. And so I'd love to hear what you have to say about what the current teaching uh, setup is for this space that is intended to be a hands-on space and what that kind of looks like. Because I can, I got to take one course um, during my last quarter. I did injection molding and I did that remotely a couple months ago, I guess at this point, um, with Marlo and that ended up working out well, but it was so unprecedented. And I was like, how's this gonna work? How's this gonna work? But I'm curious to see kind of just overall now how things have been for students with how you guys are engaging with them.
1: At the end of winter quarter last year, we learned that we would be teaching courses remotely. Uh, And my first response to that was, hell no. The whole point of the PRL is hands-on, real-time, physical interaction with tools, people, materials. It makes no sense at all to try and teach these courses remotely. I'm old enough and I've saved enough that I could just tell Stanford, I'm taking my marbles and going home, I'm not gonna do this. That was my first response. Interestingly enough, it was also Marlo Cohn's first response. Uh, Mm -hmm. Others were more enthusiastic. Uh, Dan Solman was much more enthusiastic, for instance, and Craig was kind of relatively silent on the topic. (laughs) <laughs> then I went to the town hall meeting. Ellen Cool was, was our department chairwoman at that point in time and continues to be. And she said to everybody who was at that town hall meeting, but I think it might have been just for faculty because this comment suggests that that was true. She said, we really appreciate that the faculty in mechanical engineering are perfectionists about their teaching. They really want to do a superb job. And we recognize that when we change teaching methods, you may have to settle for less than perfection." And I want you to do that because our students need you. They need to be able to to advance in their curriculum, to get to pass courses, to learn important material, perhaps without interruption. And the only way we can really do that at this point in time is through remote teaching. So please, you signed up to play on this team. You signed up to play the position you're playing, take the field and do the best you can under these circumstances. And that comment really got to me. In fact, I am now a, a total advocate for Ellen Cool. I think she's just a wonderful leader. And that's one of the reasons I think that. So then we began to think, all right, what can we really do? And from my kind of naive perspective, uh, I was thinking principally about courses that had structured labs and that had site visits, manufacturing site visits in them. And, and how could you replace that? So in ME 103, The idea was, okay, we can't do structured labs. What are we gonna do instead? And the two ideas were, let's be much more serious about CAD and let's be much more serious about teaching manufacturing processes. And so that required developing a, a lot of new material. And the lucky thing was that Tom Kenny in the Dean's office Ultimately, it took a while, but ultimately committed that we would have the same number of CAs this year as we had last year because nobody could figure out how to calculate the appropriate allocation. Well, that meant we had CAs who weren't teaching structured labs, so what were they going to do? Well, that was great for them because they, their appointments were not canceled, and it was turned out unexpectedly great for us because they were no longer course assistants. They became essentially partner professors for all of us. They created new material in ME 103. What used to be tech notes, you probably never even went and looked at them. Almost nobody ever did, only as a last resort. If you couldn't find a coach who, who could help you, maybe you would go look at the tech notes. Uh, well, they became a major part of the course because a lot of attention. They became essentially, oh yeah, there's an internet. We could curate the great videos that are out there, the great articles that are out there so that, so that an ME 103 or 203 student would have a quicker way to get to really useful information and information that would transcend what we actually have time and lecture uh, to present. So that was a really important thing. And then we went for longer, smaller coaching groups. And so it really became very important because the sense of community with remote teaching is harder to achieve. It became very important that one coach got to know three students very well, multiple times a week, with Slack as an instantaneous feedback mechanism whenever it was needed. So in essence, Slack is very good for internal communications among a a functional group while those coaching groups became those functional groups. And then they were kind of released from having to actually make much of anything. And in a way that was very liberating because I think most students feel more comfortable learning 3D printing and CAD uh, than they do learning machining and casting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this gave us a chance to really admire the work they were doing in some new domains. Result, uh, uh, feedback came back positive, uh, very positive, in fact. We did what we set out to do. We delivered courses that had value, and those courses do not have the same value. It's a different kind of value. It's not better or worse, probably, but it's different uh, than they have had in the past. The other thing that's a fact is that When you do these lectures, all of a sudden, especially if you do them asynchronously, uh, which is how we started out, your old slide deck isn't very useful anymore because it really doesn't stand on its own. It really Mm -hmm. needs better videos, more captions, more circles and arrows, uh, more careful structuring, closer relationship between what's presented in those presentations and what's going on in the student's assignment life. And so a great deal of effort was put into redesigning the the presentation lecture in class adventure parts of the courses. So I think we've done a pretty good job. I think the student feedback confirms that. But I can hardly wait to get back to the point where we can actually be on site with our site visits instead of doing them by hosts making videos for us. Mm -hmm. And we can actually be doing structured labs because what the students aren't getting is they aren't getting that that intuition uh that that judgment about basic manufacturing processes if you if you haven't felt it if you haven't experienced it it's just not as powerful a tool if, if you kind of you can draw diagrams and you've got some vocabulary but you haven't actually experienced those processes you're not going to be as good a designer as you would otherwise be
2: couldn't agree more yeah there's uh you have to be able to hold it in your hand you have to be able to yeah. see it feel the fit, whatever it is. Yeah. Then you can't really replace that, but it's awesome to hear that you guys have made the effort to come close, to continue to offer that yeah. um, experience.
1: Well, and I think when we do go back to the site teaching as, as our, as the mainstay of what we do, and we've always done remote teaching. I've been teaching SCPD courses for decades, mm. but, uh, and that's fun. It's a different kind of fun and it has a different kind of value, but I think our on-site teaching will be better because I think we've all learned some interesting things by teaching, in a remote format.
0: So I I have I have a final question before we kind of wrap up this interview. What have been kind of the major trends that you've seen in decades in the PRL, whether it's coursework, the types of people that come through, the things that you find students valuing in the PRL space? What have been those major trends that you've seen since you got there in the 70s?
1: When I started running the PRL, it was on the verge of extinction. Wow doing things with your hands from an academic point of view has since the early Greek culture been denigrated. Who does things with their hands? People digging ditches, people mining coal, you know, people who are getting dirty and their lower back hurts and 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 they're, they don't have much social respectability, they don't have much income, they, they just don't have a great quality of life. Whereas people who think <laughs> and... And, and do research and write poetry and, and create financial systems um, have had a lot more respect. And so that perspective was alive and well when I was born in academia, and I think was still alive and well pretty much when I came to Stanford. And it had, it had some people who were exceptions, Professor Debray in Aero and Astro, Jim Adams in mechanical engineering. There were some people who really valued doing things with your hands. But it, it, when I came to Stanford, the best thing for me to do was stay as invisible as possible because I didn't have tenure and I didn't have much prestige uh, and I wasn't doing something that was fundamental to the to the job description of a research university. I wasn't doing any research. Um, and so that was, I was just kind of essentially pleasing myself despite the low salary. Um, it, it, it was... It, It was a fairly immature and and irresponsible uh, basis for a professional life. Um, Then I think over time, things began to change a little bit. And the biggest change I saw, the first change I saw wasn't a change, but it was a reality. The students in those days, their worldview, they were largely relatively affluent white people from this country, from this culture. um, And they were rebelling against their parents. And their parents had, had recovered from the depression and were working hard and had achieved something, some comfort in their life, uh, some stability, and maybe even some prestige. And so in the 60s, we all kind of thought, no, 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 we're going to go back and we're going to live off the land and we're going to get in contact with what's really important with life. And it's not money, uh, it's, it's a variety of other things. And so we were all very interested in how to make things (laughs) because if you're gonna live by your own resources, uh, instead of through medicine or or financial service or or some other means, academic service, uh, making things was much more central to what you might wanna do. So in those days, students flocked to the shop, eager to have that experience. Uh, And then things did begin to change. And I would say the first change I saw was with the advent of the opportunity to start video game companies and to to become entrepreneurs who became very wealthy very quickly, uh, the notion, kind of the statement usually was, well, money is the marijuana of the 70s and 80s for students, the idea that affluence is possible. And then the next thing I, I think, and I didn't see much change in attitude towards the PRL at that point in time, except that the university had begun to recognize Uh, begin to give some recognition to the PRL as being uh, useful, maybe not important, but useful and well done kind of an organization. And then I think with the advent of transportation becoming much less expensive and much more accessible and electronic communication becoming just plain awesome, then I began to see students, A, the student body look more diverse to me and B, the diversity of experience among students. Look much greater and I think a sense of altruism of how to make the world better was born at about that time And I think that was because we all knew more about the world at that time Mm -hmm. And could see that 90% of the world lived in abject poverty and could begin to appreciate In a variety of ways one of which has always been stanford's overseas program that program is superb And what you do is you go live someplace and English isn't the first language that's spoken there usually unless it's Washington DC or London so there are some exceptions but usually not and what you discover what I discovered by participating as a as a faculty in Germany uh, for a quarter is people who are different are also wonderful and it comes right back to my statement about teaching and that's part of where that statement was born you know I grew up with parents, my father had been in World War II. he didn't see active service, but he was part of that culture. And the Germans were not people you wanted to be around, from that point of view. And so I go over there to try and teach uh, at the overseas center in Germany. And my colleagues, there were wonderful people, I love being around them. So that was, that was a, a transformation for me. But I think it was a transformation that was going on in the world generally. And then all of a sudden there was the perception, correct perception, that the Japanese had figured out how to do manufacturing better than the U.S. was doing it. And the U.S. was historically, because they emerged from World War II having cranked up production a lot and not having been bombed into smithereens, uh, they were in a position to dominate manufacturing in the world. And so we were kind of complacent, kind of, we thought we had it under control. And the Japanese were really thinking hard about how to improve manufacturing and making huge strides. And all of a sudden, kind of, I don't know exactly when to put this, um, after I'd been at Sanford for about 15 years, so say in the mid 80s. It was true that the Japanese had taken our market share away in almost every consumer product imaginable, automobiles, television sets, you name it. If you wanted a good quality product, it probably came from Japan and machine tools. uh, It was was a striking change. And so there was a lot of concern among US major industrial organizations about our non-competitive manufacturing position. And they poured some money into universities uh, so they tried to recruit government help and academic help uh, and, and, and create a better uh, sense of how manufacturing ought to be done. Well, guess what? You come to Stanford and you want to fund something in manufacturing, where do you look? The PRL. So, so all of a sudden, the PRL has got some money, which it sort of never had had before. Um, and so that meant we hired Craig Milroy and it meant we bought a lot of new tools and it meant we launched some new courses uh, integrated design for marketing and manufacturing joint with the business school, good products, bad products, and outgrowth of Jim Adams's quality in the products of industry course. Uh, so all of a sudden uh, there was interest in us and I got promoted from teaching specialist to professor Perrin teaching, which just would never have happened otherwise and probably would never happen again, but mm-hmm. it, nevertheless it did. So that was a big change for us. And then most recently what I'm seeing is I'm seeing students that seem afraid of machining and casting and welding. They don't seem afraid of 3D printing or of CAD, but they do seem <laughs> afraid of the more traditional processes. And so rather than having them coming eagerly to us, they are coming with some fear, anxiety, and trepidation. And so uh, that kind of suggests that we should behave in a quite different way than we have historically. And the other thing I'm seeing is that Stanford's doing a great job of attracting a more diverse group of incoming students. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the numbers are, you know, financial aid is now going to something like 40% of all incoming freshmen, and it's full financial aid in the majority of cases. And so that's gonna be uh, a different mix of students than I grew up with in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s. More interesting mix of students. Uh, but things like how much do the materials to take m 103 cost? And mm. Is that a complete barrier for students? Are, are new perceptions on our part. Uh, how do students who are not necessarily accustomed to asking questions of and getting help from their affluent faculty, uh, You know, how, how do you handle that? Uh, so there's a whole series of new sensibilities that we are trying to develop to respond to that issue. And the outcome is going to be wonderful. We'll be better than we've ever been before because of this. But the transition uh, has emotionally stressful and intellectually difficult components to it uh, as we move forward. And then the other really big thing that's happened is maker spaces have become uh, very fashionable. Mm -hmm. Schools all the way from preschools to (laughs) major research universities are spending hundreds of millions of dollars per institution to create makerspaces. And Stanford is not doing that yet. And so I'm feeling personally, oh my goodness, you know, we led for 50, 40 years, we led the country, if not the world, in what we were doing. And now we're having trouble getting any funding. So that's <laughs> that's a that's a current frustration. Um I don't know how that will get resolved. The virus hasn't even come into this conversation yet, except that it did uh, provoke uh, remote or virtual teaching and learning. But one of the things the virus has done is it's put Stanford's plans to take makerspaces much more seriously uh, on hold because there's so much, so many other decisions and problems that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So I think you could kind of expect going forward that Stanford is gonna do something significant in this domain um, and that, that, and it will look a little different. It will, it will probably have more digital tools and less physical tools. Mm-hmm. It will probably be more altruistic than it has ever been before. It's always been a little strange that we graduate students who know how to run a lathe when they're never going to run a lathe to make a dollar in their life, probably. <laughs> uh, so we'll probably graduate students that are, are more carefully uh, calibrated in terms of their education to what they're really going to be doing as they go forward.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where uh, the program continues to go because I feel just in like a couple years out from it, looking back and seeing changes in courses and everything, it's exciting to see just like the pace at which it evolves to keep up with everything else that's happening in the world.
1: Well, and that's the thing we can say about the virus, which is actually positive. External events are sometimes a source of creativity. Mm-hmm. The Japanese prowess in manufacturing was one such event. Uh, and this virus has been another, and it's been a horrible source of torture and torment and, and pain for a huge number of people. Uh, but it's also the kind of thing that forces creativity, forces rethinking, uh, experimentation, taking bigger risks. Uh, so frankly, I had become fairly complacent in my own set of ideas <laughs> and what we were doing. And the virus has definitely cured that for me. Um, so... Uh, It's worth keeping in mind about the virus that I believe Stanford, of whom I am sometimes critical, is doing a very responsible, very energetic, very thoughtful job of managing this crisis. Uh, I I can say without reservation, I'm very proud of Stanford's behavior here. Mm -hmm. And there are silver linings to it. There are ways in which uh, we will be better off as, as well as having been tortured so mightily
0: as a result. We should have elected you to office with that ending speech (laughs) (laughs) well dave thank you so much for your time and you know answering our questions about this before we we leave you to the rest of your day we do always end our interviews with rapid fire questions and so we have three for you back in my sophomore year we had a wonderful conversation when i was trying to force my way into me203 and you divulged that you had interned at mattel and you had done some thesis work i believe with playground equipment that helps with children with autism. So on that note, what is your favorite toy and or playground equipment?
1: My favorite toy isn't, most people wouldn't say it was a toy at all. It's either my 1906 Seth Thomas clock or my 1950 GMC three quarter ton pickup truck. (laughs) Uh, And generally speaking, any tool, you can think of that as a toy. Did, Did I have to buy that tool? I had to because I was remodeling my own house. I had to have that table saw. I had to. <laughs> uh, and when my brother-in-law was an architect, uh, volunteered to loan me all those tools, I said, no, 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 no. That would take away my possibility of buying them for myself. So toys and tools are, tend to be identical for me.
2: Fantastic. Um, you also made a point earlier, um, of back in the 60s and 70s, connecting with the land and with building and making things. I think it was mentioned at some point while at Stanford that you uh, possibly hunt, is that correct? I am not a hunter, but I do
1: own hunting dog. In fact, I I own my sixth hunting dog. They've all been Chesapeake Bay Retrievers. And I do train the dog and that does involve other people shooting birds for her among, among other things. So there's a sport called field trials and another one called hunt tests and I am, reasonably deeply involved in both of those things at this point in time and that's because the it's a it's a partnership the dog and i are partners just as my students and i are partners and we walk the line in a competition or a training situation and the trainer says walk to the line with confidence and don't quit and so she is now operating tiny changes in my body position tiny changes will change her body position so I can get her pointed in the right direction. And then when I launch her, I still have control of 350 yards away from me through water with crosswinds and in and out of brush. And you know, so far away, I can almost not see carefully enough to know where she really is. And she and I are still dancing together even though we're 350 yards apart. And the capability of well-bred retrievers to behave that way is just so seductive and so magic. I can't resist it
2: amazing okay yeah no i don't even think there was a question there at this point but yeah no that that.
1: oh you gave me an opening be careful giving me openings can be
0: dangerous (laughs) and 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 finally what's been your personal favorite build
1: the thing i've built that i'm most proud of the house i'm sitting in today every nail every shovel full of dirt every shingle all the wiring all the plumbing everything it started out as a 1953 vintage one story 950 square foot tract house in south palo alto and we were lucky to be able to afford that in fact given the job i had accepted <laughs> back to the earlier story it's amazing that we were able to buy a house at all and just about the time my kids were going off to college we decided it was much too crowded here and so we were going to remodel what a crazy idea we've got college expenses now and people are moving out of the house what are we doing this for? well it was because my wife and i sat together at a coffee shop local coffee shop one day and I said, the house is too darn crowded, I hate it. And she said, well, we could make it bigger. And I said, well, we can't afford to, we're sending our children off to school. And I said, well, I'm a shop teacher. I can probably build a house. Why don't I do it myself? And that was the beginning of a very long adventure. And it's not all that that fancy, it's not all that big, but kind of we together made every decision about that piece of trim or that appliance or that Mm -hmm. wall color, or whether we're gonna have one or two fireplaces, or. And because the progress was extremely slow, me trying to do this alone with the help, <laughs> exploited graduate students were invited to come and, <laughs> eat, uh, <laughs> and pick up heavy things for me. And I've got some wonderful pictures of that. Um, anyhow, uh, when you do something yourself, you have a different feeling about it when you're done. And so as a maker, the most significant thing I have personally built with a lot of help, I didn't do it alone, my wife was absolutely critical to this uh, was this house here in South Palo Alto that's a little bigger than it was and I think much more beautiful aesthetically than it was. Plus there's some gardening in there and you mentioned gardening and I at one point in my life I thought I wanted to be a farmer. I say (laughs) now thank goodness I didn't make that choice as I know more about it but I still enjoy growing some vegetables and some fruit uh, and, and so that's a that's an integral part of what the house is about. It's not just a house, it's a, it's a tiny little run show.
2: <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you again, Dave. It's always great, man. Every time I uh, hear you talk, you you inspire us a little bit because I think Alex and I are always consistently trying to uh, get down a similar path of just trying to build everything, but it'll be a while till we get there, but baby steps. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you inspire me too. I've enjoyed the conversation very much. I, I was dreading what it might be, and it couldn't <laughs> be
0: more fun. So thank you very much. Yeah, Francis made sure to make it the most ambiguous title ever. So <laughs> thank you for going. <laughs> thank you for going in with uh, with courage, and we had a wonderful time talking with you. So thank you. Fantastic. Excellent. You have a wonderful rest of your day, Dave. You too. Bye bye.